I remember waking up the day after the election. I remember feeling many things like, oh shit, this is real. And then also, I get to go to work. I started working at the New York Times when I was 25, and it's always been, you know, a lighthouse in that way for me. That's Jenna Wortham, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and one of the nation's leading writers on technology, media, race, sexuality, and anything else she puts her mind to. This is Scott Saul, and you're listening to Chapter and Verse, the books and arts podcast out of UC Berkeley that delves into the stories that grip our cultural imagination. Stay close. This episode of Chapter and Verse comes from a public conversation between Jenna Wortham and Nadia Ellis, my colleague in UC Berkeley's English department, held this past February 27th at the Berkeley Art Museum. Jenna Wortham is best known for her reporting and essays for the New York Times Magazine. Her recent pieces include Why the Internet Didn't Kill Zines, Who Didn't Go to the Women's March Matters More Than Who Did, and my favorite headline in a while, Social Media Got You Down? Be More Like Beyonce. She co-hosts the New York Times podcast Still Processing with film critic and essayist Wesley Morris. Nadia Ellis, who engages Wortham here, is an associate professor in Berkeley's English department, where she teaches courses in American and post-colonial literature, queer theory, and black diasporic culture. She's the author recently of Territories of the Soul, Queered Belonging in the Black Diaspora. Their conversation has been lightly edited and condensed for time. Thank you all for coming. It's so wonderful to see you all here. And can we just thank Jenna one more time for her being out here? <laughs> We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. So Jenna Wortham, staff writer for the New York Magazine, amongst many other things, apparently also the author of The Black Future. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> so this is something she'll have to tell us about. This is a website and a project that she's working on um, that we'll hear more about. But um, we wanted to start with your own words. And so we're going to have Jenna read a little bit from a piece of hers that she recently wrote, and then we'll move from there. I'm so excited to be here. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm going to read something brief from a piece I wrote over this summer for the New York Times um, called Black Health Matters. And it's brief, but bear with me. <clears throat> I thought back. It wasn't completely outrageous. The first outbreak started in June, around the time that a man threatened to shoot up my local gay bar in Brooklyn, Orlando style. And it flared as outrage and grief over the killing of two black men, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, by police officers, began flooding my social media feeds in a loop that swooped from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram and back. The video that emerged in July of a young black woman named Sapphire Williams being forcefully arrested while giving an interview to a reporter still gives me nightmares. Each time a photograph of Corinne Gaines, a young mother killed by police during a standoff in her home, floated across my screen, I saw my 19-year-old niece who attends college in Baltimore and wept at the thought that it could have been her. All the rage and mourning and angst works to exhaust you. It eats you alive with its relentlessness. These slangs obey no humane logic. They force you to reconcile your own helplessness in the face of such brutal injustice and the terrifying reality that it could happen to you or someone you hold dear. So one of the things that that piece does is that it gets us inside your tech writing, if we might call it that, at a very particular moment. So this is last summer, um, when in some ways, 
things have changed for you in terms of your relationship to tech uh, as structure and as metaphor. And maybe in order to contextualize that shift, we should start by thinking about how you became a tech writer in the first place and how you conceived of yourself as a tech writer. And then we can sort of come forward to this moment where um, we think about these platforms as things that were potentially making you ill, right? And the choice that you made to actually talk about that and put yourself in the piece. But first, how did you become a tech writer? <laughs> and how did you think of yourself as a tech writer? Um, that's a great question. It's funny because we talked about this earlier and so I'm like, what's the short version? Yeah. But, um, you know, I, it's interesting because I never, you know, I wanted to be a writer and I didn't really know many people in my life who wrote or who had any type of job that wasn't outside of the government or outside of a very particular class of work. Um, so once I got exposed to writing and once I got exposed to writers, I started thinking a lot about what interested me. And as any good subject does, it kind of found me and it was an editor who suggested because I was already very excited about the internet and was kind of a nerd and spent a lot of time online, but also thinking about how we interact and how we communicate and how it's evolving and shifting and what it means about how we relate to each other. Those were already things I was I was talking about. Um, and so an editor, when I was working at San Francisco Magazine as an intern, suggested I think about going to Wired. And when I was there, I just, you know, they say, write what you know, which is, I don't know, I read it on the back of like a cereal box because I didn't go to J school, but um, they say, write what you know. And so at the time, what I knew was I was interested in the iPhone. I was interested in the way people could make money on YouTube. I, I was interested in just how the world around me was changing. And, and that was the most natural thing to write about. Um, so I, it, it's, it's weirdly happenstance, but I think when I look back, it's, I was sort of, my whole life was kind of leading up towards that. And so I just started writing about the way the world around me was changing. And, and that was through technology. Yeah. And you had an interest in gadgets. You also had an interest in the way that tech structured social relations. Um, and then you moved to the Times and you ended up having to write about the financing of it. So you got interested in a lot of different um, forms. One of the things that I find really, really funny about how it seems that you were first posi positioned at the Times is um, they were doing a series of videos of conversations between different journalists. And there's one with you and David Carr, the late David Carr. Um, and you're talking, I think, about the SOPA um, controversy. Um, and he's positioned as, you know, the the elder statesman of media criticism, and he's asking you to tell him, what, what is Twitter? <laughs> what does it mean that these companies now, that seem to have ephemeral products, now seem to have this kind of force? And you were trying to explain that there was something about both the scale and the intimacy of the user base that gave them power, even if they didn't have financial power. I wonder if you could describe when you became, your, your various relationships to that, right? To the notion of having a kind of intimate relationship to various platforms. And then also how you began to translate um, the implications of that to either elder statesmen or in your writing, and especially around race, because I think that's the thing that, that happened with your writing, is you were able to explain the racial and gendered vectors, right? Of that kind of user base. I remember exactly the day it happened. Um, it was the day that Instagram got, purchased by Facebook for a billion dollars, and I'll never forget it. It was a very proud moment for me. Um, because, at the, you know, as you mentioned, I'd been, um, I'd 
the times had poached me to, they were like, do what you do. We just want you to do your thing and just do it on the web. And then of course I arrived and they were like, you're covering AT&T and Verizon. And I was like, what? <laughs> like I was hoodwinked. No, you know, but then I was like, fine. Um, but it was great because basically they taught me how to, you know, I, I learned how to be a journalist from the ground up and covering those companies. You know, it, it was something really remarkable. They, at the time I was 25 and they threw me in a room with literally the head of AT&T, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world and was just like, take her seriously. And, and there was something about that. And, and they, they pushed me in, in lots of ways um, to take myself really seriously in a time that maybe I wouldn't have. So I, I'm always really grateful for that. But anyway, I was trying to transition out of that boring job and get into something else. And so I was on the internet. Uh, we had a meeting and I was late for the meeting because I was on Facebook. And then I noticed <laughs> that Mark Zuckerberg posted we just bought Facebook, uh, we, sorry, ugh, we just bought Instagram. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's huge. But then I was like, yes, because I'm, this is like exactly my, my moment to shine. And so I went to get my editor and was like, hey, I think this is a big deal. Like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is announcing that he bought this tiny, at the time it was still pretty tiny, fast growing startup for a billion dollars. And it was, it was a moment too, we got a window into what, how Facebook was starting to see itself as a kind of a colonizer, but also a, um, a media entity because they posted it on Facebook. Normally, you know, the way journalism works, they would have they would have reached out to someone who covers their company. They would have given them access. It would have been a scoop, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so my editor was like, "Great catch." write it up, so I was, you know, blogging it, and we published it very quickly, and I think we were one of the first to, to report on it, which was exciting for me, and um, it was actually really exciting because I put a Rihanna reference in the lead, and no one noticed, and I was really proud of it. <laughs> and my editor found out, and he was like, Jenna, and I was like, oh, but what? Like, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> Rihanna noticed it. And I remember the line because it was, it's not even their second birthday. And, um, because <laughs> Instagram was a year old. And, but it was a really exciting moment for the New York Times because I walked into our everyday the New York Times. They have a they have a page one meeting and they if you've ever seen the documentary page one, it's like they it's where they decide the most important stories of the day. And I'll never forget because I you know my editor said, well this was your scoop. You should come and explain to them. You should come pitch the story for the front page. And I'll never forget because I walked in and I was like like rummaging around in my filing cabinet like where's my blazer and then went into the meeting and you know someone said to me like what's Instagram in the meeting? It's what's Instagram and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a, this is a real moment for me because, I mean, these people are thinking about the world on a very large scale. It's not a, it's not shade on them that they didn't know what Instagram was, but I immediately understood my value and sort of how I could pivot and how I could sort of change my career in that moment. And so, the, as the day went on, we kept adding to the blog post, and then the blog post ended up being the A1 article, which again was very unprecedented for the New York Times. I think it was I think someone said to me it was maybe one of the first times something published as a blog post, which and now these distinctions I know don't make a lot of, you know, it's like they seem irrelevant, but at the time it was a big deal to transition that seamlessly from just web to the newspaper in that way. And again, the Rihanna reference stayed in, so I was pleased. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a big deal for me. And so that was the moment I was like, oh, this is, this is my skill actually. This is, I'm looking at, this is the way I'm gonna observe the world around me changing and write about it. And that's my value here too, because you know, you always have to think about like, how am I, indispensable because this media business is changing so much all the time. And so I did that for a little while and that was the pitch I made to my editor which was like, let me do this full time and, and if, I, if I don't do enough work or it's not interesting, I'll go back to covering yeah. those companies. But that was the transition. 
What were people not necessarily understanding about how minority users were using some of these platforms uh, before, say, before the sort of raft of videos of uh, police violence and, and killings started to um, be seen as a political tool? I think I remember um, a colleague of mine, um, a young woman, who we were hired around the same time, so we were kind of buds in the trenches. And, um, you know, we were we worked on the tech team, so it was mostly men, mostly white men, and so we bonded. And um, we wanted to do a series on gender and race in Silicon Valley. And this was way before this was like a, a buzzy topic like it is now, and obviously a very important one, but this was, we really were pushing it. We wanted to talk about work-life balance, we wanted to talk about diversity numbers, we wanted to talk about um, exclusion to funding, and we couldn't really get a lot of traction, and it was really interesting. It was a really interesting experiment for both of us, because we knew what we were interested in, and she still writes a lot about um, gender dynamics in Silicon Valley and in the workplace. I mean, that's what she's made her career, and I've sort of transitioned to doing what I want to do for my career, but um, it, was, it was just really eye-opening, because I think it was really hard for us to get um, these, you know, these older white men to see where we were coming from. And I remember having a discussion with an editor about a tech founder who'd opened up to me, who's black, who was saying, "I went through all these meetings, and I had, I had the, re you know, I had the resume, I had the experience, and I could not get." the money, and how do you explain that? And so we were just having a really honest conversation about that, and I was like, we should, we should do something on this. We should, we should really research and investigate and interrogate this. And the editor was like, this is not my direct editors who were extremely helpful for me when I was coming up, but another editor within the paper, who was like, um, but he got the money, right? And I was like, well, yeah, he got the money, but, but that's not the point. The point is, why was it so hard for him to get the money? I think there's, and they just couldn't quite grasp the, the concept that, I, the, or just the notion that racism could exist in Silicon Valley. So it was very, it was very interesting, very eye-opening for me. So you had been doing lots of this kind of conversation with your editors about why this kind of reporting mattered, why it made sense to think about technology and think about Silicon Valley in the um, context of people of color, gender, etc. Um, and then you come to this moment in your career. This is about November, where you go to Obama's White House, right, his sort of swan song. Um, and he's brought Silicon Valley into DC. And you're, I noticed, and we talked about this a little bit, that your tone was a little bit different at this moment. And there's, there's a little bit that I could read that maybe give, would give you a sense of this if you haven't read this article. Um, first of all, I think you coined this South by South Lawn. Was that, or did they coin that? They coined that, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were shading them, <laughs> but they wanted to call it this. South by South Lawn <laughs> presented an image of America as a startup and technology as a small batch industry full of dreamers and inventors. I was invited to moderate a panel, how do we fix real problems with technology? As much as I enjoyed our conversation, the premise felt flawed. Fixing problems with technology often just creates more problems largely because technology is never developed in a neutral way. It embodies the values and biases of people who create it. So by the time you write that paragraph, what's changed <laughs> in the sort of five years since you moved to the Times and then we're starting to write for the magazine? Mm -hmm. Well, part of the thing that pushed me to, to transition to working at the magazine and leave the newsroom is I, 
I was starting to, I was having so much fun. And after the Instagram story, I've continued to write about startups. And it was, we were in this boom time about all these companies that were starting and getting acquired. And it was just, it was really fun. And I was definitely able to establish myself. But I could also feel the limitations around what I could report. And so it was just always hard to get at the truth of the matter and understand what it meant that the money came from this funder, this money. You know, it was just, I knew I wasn't getting to tell the whole story. And then I was starting to hear, you know, I'd, I'd, um, by then I was living in New York, but I'd come out here for a week or two and I'd, you know, I'd be at a, at a dinner and someone would say, well, you know, there are all these for-profit coding companies that never really work out and leave people in debt. Like I was just starting to hear these other narratives emerge that the press people don't want you to know. And I, it was just sort of like very clear to me that and if I wanted to be more of a critic of Silicon Valley, I had to stop covering it in the way that I'd been covering it. And I was also, frankly, tired of talking to the same type of founder over and over again. And I wanted to talk to people that look like me. I wanted to write about people that look like me. I wanted to, I wanted people like me to open the New York Times Magazine, like I used to, like we used to in college, and see um, us, you know, and, and so that became the mission. It started to feel a lot more urgent. But I think around this time, too, there was this tide that was turning in a lot of people who've been writing in, about the Valley and covering it and thinking about it and trying to understand what we've been spoon-fed a little bit um, about the way these companies were going to change modern life and start to understand, oh, they're changing modern life, but what does it mean and whose version of the future are they presenting? Like, what does it mean when you have a very small select group of people deciding what images come up first when you search beautiful on Google image? For a while, they were pictures of white women with blonde hair, you know, and that's definitely someone's version of beautiful. But when we think about the resource that Google is and what it offers, it's the word. I mean, it's the word of truth in the way that Wikipedia is. So I started to start started to have a much more academic and philosophical conversation with myself about what it meant that these technologies were considered the default, and we treated them as neutral, but they weren't as all at all. And it felt like that kind of philosophical change um, happened at the same time as you actually made a career change within right. the paper. So can you talk about what that was like to move from? tech reporter to magazine writer to move from newsroom to culture writer and culture producer, just um, maybe administratively, but also in terms of your own sense of your work, what changed? It was so exciting. Um, it was exciting for a couple of reasons, mainly because when I, I lived in San Francisco for a long time after I graduated from college and I waitressed and interned and worked, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week trying to become a writer. And when I was out here, the thing I was thinking was like, my dream job is to be a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. Like, that is the dream job. And I never thought it would actually happen. So it's like a little moment whenever I think about it. Um, but for me, it was the opportunity to become more of a writer and to become more of a critical thinker, a professional thinker, and also to validate myself because I never really thought that was a job I would have, right? I never thought that that was something I could, because I, I really didn't do well. I mean, I love, I'm like loving being here at Berkeley because I didn't do well in college, and so it's just very fun to be like, <laughs> look at me now, everyone. Look at me now. <laughs> Um, so it's, you know, it's just been a process of like understanding too that, you know, for at least for me, and this is why I wanted to come here tonight, and this is why I wanted to talk to your class earlier today, is that you don't have to come up through, you don't have to come up through the traditional system in order to 
have any, I don't know, any semblance of an of illustrious career. So it's, it's always really important for me to say that over and over and over again, which is why I talk about the types of jobs my parents had, which is why I talk about my GPA, which I will not talk about <laughs> here today, but it was not high. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's important for me to talk about those things, though, because I learned a lot of that outside of the classroom. And so for me, transitioning into being a magazine writer and feeling very much an urgency and and a sense of um, entitlement also in a lot of ways. Like I also deserve to sit at that table. And so for me taking that job was really embracing that, at least outwardly, really embracing that. And also really just taking the opportunity to learn what would it be like to just write and what would it, and it, it was funny because I think I didn't understand the role that magazine writers play at a magazine and I have been very involved at the time since I've started which is why I haven't left because every time I like think about leaving they're like do you want a different job because we'll give you one and I'm like really like they're like work on a VR film develop a product come do this other thing and I it's like I'm like it's great like I, I have the best time there they're like start a podcast you know it's like they're always like giving me something else to do so I'm, I'm enjoying it um, but I think for me it was just very funny because I remember like showing up for the first day of work and I was like I'm here and my editor was like okay like all right you know like they're just like what like go in the world and see things and then come back and tell me about them and it took me a, a little while <laughs> to understand that that was my job but that it's a it's a total privilege that you're supposed to be um ambassadors of what that magazine is trying to embody and like go out and find stories and bring them back and it's just it really is the most it's, it's just the most incredible thing I've been doing lately. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that, that changes in your reporting, if you're, if you're able to see the sort of arc of your writing, is that there's much more opinion, there's much more sort of um, shades of critique, actually, both in the, in the previous article and in this one. And um, part of what we were dis discussing was that because of the different protocols that happen between newsroom and magazine, you do have latitude, right, now, to say a little bit more about what you actually feel and think about what's going on, and yet, one of the things that we want to talk about today, right, is what it means to be a writer, to be a journalist during a moment of political urgency. And so even with the latitude that you have, there is a certain kind of pressure. Um, I don't know if anxiety is a word that you're hearing amongst your colleagues um, or amongst people in the newsroom. And so I wonder if, you can, if we can talk a little bit about that, about what it has meant for you to have made this shift into a, a discursive space of greater freedom at a moment where that kind of freedom seems to be in question in terms of journalism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, I think I you know it's been really interesting to think about what one's life purpose is right now and what's important and how to focus your energy and what to be doing. And I mean, in terms of our current administration and how the policies that they're prioritizing are going to rapidly reshape geopolitical and economic life in a way that we can't even grasp, and that gives me anxiety. And I think, um, just in terms of how it affects my own personal life and the life of people, the lives of people very close to me, I remember waking up the day after the election, I remember feeling many things like, oh shit, this is real, and then also, I get to go to work. You know, I started working at the New York Times when I was 25, and it's always been a lighthouse in that way for me. It's like when anything bad happens, I go to work because, you know, everyone's, or that's where I check in because there's always work to do in service. Um, <clears throat> and so all you, I mean, it's a great place in that way because all you have to do is kind of raise your hand and say, like, I want to I wanna work on something that matters, and they'll throw your body at it. So, um so it was really exciting to, to take a moment to think about that role and what it would mean. And it was, it was interesting because I definitely remember 
among a lot of my friends who are journalists, who've been authors and critics for a long time, we were all, you know, we're all in this bracket between late 20s and mid 30s, and we were thinking like, that we're gonna all cash in, like this is gonna be our golden time. We're all gonna write a book, we're gonna sell a show to HBO, we're gonna write something for Netflix. Like everyone I know was just like, I'm gonna write a Silicon Valley. Like, I have an idea. Like, you know, and we were all working towards that. And then the election happened, and everyone was like, oh my God, like four more years. Like, we have to start. Like, we don't get a break. And there has been kind of a, I mean, it's heavy. It's heavy. And that's kind of where that piece that I read in the beginning started is that a lot of people in my life are really steeped in a, in a news environment, a climate that's unrelenting. It is exhausting. It is traumatic. Um, and it, it actually is affecting a lot of our, our health. Um, but it's interesting because I do feel um, really motivated and working on the podcast with Wesley, I mean, the only thing that actually got me to work the day after the election was we had to record the podcast. And I think in that moment, Wesley and I had been thinking, and I should say, I should give him full credit, it was his, his idea for the podcast and he brought me in. Um, and I was like, no. And then I was like, okay, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but we had this moment where we were like, we thought this was gonna be us, like, carpet bombing the Grammys and like accosting, you know, like we thought this was going to be like a very different type of show than it turned out to be. And it was just sort of like, I mean, Wesley and I are great. Like we talk all the time. I text him all the time and he never responds. And then he'll respond to everything all at once, um, which I love the most. And it, but it was this moment where we were like, oh, this is our, this is a, this is a responsibility. This isn't just, um, an opportunity. This is this is a real responsibility, and I mean, the Times never really said no. I mean, they we we never asked, but they also weren't like, don't don't tackle thing. I don't know. They just, they never gave us parameters around what we shouldn't do. And the thing that always felt the most urgent to us has been talking about this political moment and what it means, and adding a layer of emotion and context that the paper can't always do, and even the magazine can't always do. And the people who write about politics at the paper, they've been doing it for a long time. So even if I wanted to, it's not. It, it wouldn't be really. Um, it's just not something that would be that easy to do. So to have this other avenue in which we can we can add a layer of emotion, we can we can emote and we can create this very particular cocoon um, for the people that we're trying to reach, which are our people, has been really um, special. Do you mind if I play a little bit, a little clip from that particular one? It's from the Reckoning. Hopefully this will work. Hi. Hey, Wesley. How are you? How am I? I'm here, looking at you. Happy for that. Grateful for that. Sorry. So, um... This is still processing. And I'm Wesley, and this is Jenna. And, um, it's, uh... It's Wednesday, after the election, of, uh... Donald J. Trump. And I have about 450,000 feelings. And um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of some, it's entirely irrational to be upset. And it's sort of perversely irrational at the same time. Yeah. Because I can't do anything There's, right. with how upset I am. And, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to do with all this energy. Uh, it's not even energy. What is it? 
inner turmoil. I mean, it's, you know, we both said the only reason we got out of bed is because we knew we were going to see each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, it's the clash of denial and, and, and the reckoning, the reckoning that this is still our country. We can't go anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I can't. Well, I am going somewhere. I have a plane ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I have a plane ticket that end of the week. But You better come back. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure nobody will want to keep me. I feel like we're all stuck for better or for worse. And we have to deal. I mean, I, I think that's the biggest thing underneath all the fear, which is the biggest thing for me. I have a lot of concerns about personal safety for me and my community and my family. I'm very anxious. And I'm, you know, sadness and grief and and doubt and also acknowledging all the things that I ignored about what was going on and what probably would happen is just the realization that this is it for worse. You know, we're here for better, for worse. We're here. And we don't know what that looks like, the uncertainty. You know, if it had gone the other way, then at least we had a sense of what would happen. We have no idea what's going to happen next. Part of what I, why I wanted to play that is that that's the very, very beginning of that podcast, podcast number 10. And I was really struck by how vulnerable both you and Wesley felt you could be in this mode. Um, and I, I found myself wondering, before you and I actually got to talk about this, I found myself wondering whether there was any sort of editorial comment, right? Because you were talking about a presidential election, this is a matter of national politics, but you were being very, very clear about how you felt, um, not just in terms of the result, but in terms of the emotional impact of the result. And so I guess I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that, the moment of sort of ma making that podcast and making the decisions to be as open as you were about how you were feeling. Um, I love. Thank you for playing that. I love Wesley. I loved hearing his voice. So that made me really happy. Um, you know, it's interesting because we didn't really decide to do it that way. That was just we had to do with the show, um, and that's what was that was what was there that day. And doing anything else, I think, would have been dishonest. And it was interesting because we'd already booked Margot Jefferson to talk. And <clears throat> I love Margot. I always see her around town. And she has, like, this beautiful, sparkling gray afro of, like, wiry curls. And she's always, like, she's very stylish. And she's always, like, flitting around. And she's so we were already excited to have her just vibe. Um, we thought we were going to get to talk about Hillary. And we thought we were going to talk about just having the first woman president. And we were both really excited to see, like, what kind of decisions would a woman make running the company and a uh, company, uh, uh, running the country? And, um, but you know, what would it be like? What would, what would it be like? And that's what we wanted her perspective on. And so anyways, we got to work and we just went to the studio and we have a really incredible team called Pineapple Street Media. And I think this is sort of what what works in our favor is that they are an, a third, you know, they're an outside company that we work with to make our show just because the times is still getting its podcasting arm up and running and the stuff that they tend to focus their internal uh, resources are on are the daily shows and things that they do in house. And we're kind of like, you know, all over the place and out in the field. And so they just outsourced us and it's great. And, but I, you know, we weren't working, we were working with journalists, but we weren't working with times journalists. So there wasn't really anyone to say like, hold on a second 
second. Um, every every show we make, we do. There are two internal editors that listen to it, and they're always kind of like, "Can you just tell me what parts to like? Just flag the." the parts for me which is very funny because they're like what do we need to like actually listen to um, but, they, but the point is they gave us a lot of free reign but we it was just really interesting and I think we were lucky that we recorded it that day because I think very quickly you know I mean everyone at the times was caught off guard I mean I don't know if anybody was following along but our poll like, everything was just yeah I mean it was devastating not to relive any of that but I do, I do think that there was a moment of trying to understand, and I think, I don't know, I mean, the only feedback we got internally was people were really grateful that they felt we expressed some of that through the arm before we just leapt into, um, got into reporter mode and just went into action, and I think, you know, if we had done it a few days later, there might have been more of a question mark around it. But I also never heard feedback from anyone, although we did, we did ask people to listen. I mean, our, our producers asked some editors internally to listen to it. And the one thing they said was, maybe just give some more context for why you're upset and make it, if you're comfortable, a little bit more personal about how this affects your life. And so I think that was actually just a really good note. I mean, you know, I thought that was a really good... Um, that was a really good edit for us. And that was, I mean, that was the thing we got the most, that and the Kanye episode, but the Kanye, like everyone loved the Kanye episode, but those are the two episodes we get the most feedback about. But I think it's, but I also think too, I mean, I, I'm trying to give the, the, the Times a lot of credit because I think they are giving us a lot of room to be ourselves and I think they're trusting and they, I think they're also like, it's really something, I mean, Wesley is such a, a special creature that it doesn't surprise me they're putting a lot of investment in him, but there's something about the way they're letting us be that voice that is an extension of the New York Times, and it's, it's not a small thing that we're both black, we're both queer, we're both, you know, just kind of wiling out all the time on their dime, and they don't seem to mind, but, but I don't know. It's, so there is something, there is something to me very interesting about I think that there was a lot of acceptance around um, making the the company and the brand and that experience more intimate. Like they wanted people to understand that there were people inside who felt that way maybe. Yeah. So it did feel like it functioned like that for many of us, right? That there was, you know, the New York Times was allowing us to cry in public, <laughs> you know, through you, through you and Wesley. I mean, I, wa I just wonder whether there are conversations happening either at the Times or amongst other of your journalist colleagues about what urgency means right now, like what kinds of responses. So this is one response that was needed. It was sort of right the day after the kind of rawness. But but what else? We were saying, yeah. for instance, that urgency is not just like breaking news every 35 seconds, which is what we're now being conditioned to think. But there are other ways of thinking about this. Yeah. Right. I think there's been a, a total recalibration <clears throat> among, I mean, all of my friends who are, who are journalists, especially in New York, um, about what it what it means to do the work that we do, what it means to have a platform, and, and who do we advocate for, and how do we do it. And I think that's happening on a very broad scale, I think, in terms of what people want to cover and what they want to focus on. And I mean, I know a lot of people have asked to be reassigned to certain beats that they feel are very urgent, and they want to spend their energy that way. Um, I also think there's sort of a sense of, you know, trying to keep a level head right now, and, and also like try to have a longer view and not be so steeped in the here and now, because this is something that needs context. Is this something that needs, a, you know, a 5,000 and a 50,000 view as well as an on the ground view? And so um, there, are, I mean, I, I can speak personally, but I mean, all the time I'm a part of and invited to and hosting 
coalitions of journalists to just to get together and talk about how are we taking care of ourselves, how are we taking care of each other, how are we making sure we're doing the work that we feel like that needs to be done. And New York is one of the most competitive cities I've ever lived in. It is a city that thrives on productivity and a, a feeling of efficiency. And it just kind of goes away right now. There's a sense of like, we all have to work together. We all have to promote each other's stories. We all have to talk about um, what we're working on and help each other, which I think has really been really um, powerful and really interesting. And the book project that I'm working on with my friend Kimberly Drew, which is sort of an image from, it's not really an image from the project. It's kind of a landing page, but that's been a part of it too. It's sort of trying to understand um, I'm jumping around, but this, there's this book project that I'm working called, loosely called the Black Futures Project. That's not its name, that's just what we're calling it. It's a book concept that we've been working on um, and, have, and have successfully pitched and sold to, um, it's not quite yet announced, but a pretty big name editor in New York, but it's, it's this idea of, you know, we've been imagining black futures, you know? And we, the future we thought we were what we've had to. We've always had to as a mechanism for survival, but the future we thought we were walking into four years ago, you know, eight years ago, is very different from the one we're walking into now. And so how are we, how are we using our imagination, our radical imagination to move ahead and, and what are we engaging with? And so that's also the project that gets me up every morning. It's the most exciting thing that I work on. I'm very eager for us to have a conversation with everyone here. And so I'm going to just have you read from your extraordinary and beautiful profile of Sid the Kid from the internet as a way of sort of closing off and then opening up into the audience. So please. Okay. <clears throat> During the handful of times we met, I repeatedly tried to talk to Bennett about the importance of her visibility as a gay singer. And every time she seemed uneasy with the idea that she was a symbol. But she can't avoid it. There is virtually no one else like her in the public eye. The last time I saw her, we were having breakfast in the Hotel Hacienda Coquillote in Coquillote, Mexico, a few hours before the internet was scheduled to play a local festival in the forest. And I picked at the topic again. Did she see herself as symbolic of something larger than herself? Bennett's outward manner is so, um, excuse me, is so nonchalant and mellow, and she's high all the time. Uh, it can start to seem like an affectation. But as soon as the words left my mouth, Bennett put down her fork full of pancake and slid me a sideways look, the kind you give someone when your patience is wearing thin, but you still feel obligated to be polite. Maybe I just look at things differently, she said to me, speaking slowly, as one might to a child who's having trouble absorbing a set of simple instructions. I never really thought it was a thing, you know, like I didn't think it would be this big of a deal. I agreed that it wasn't, and I said I was simply in awe of how openly she lives her life at a young age, when many women I know, including me, came to terms with their sexuality much later in life. The cloud lifted. Now we saw each other clearly. The internet, the network, has a way of normalizing fringe ideas, marginalized identities, and emerging artists that old media tends to ignore. It has done such a good job, you could argue, that people like Bennett, black, queer, and weird, can exist without the burden of having to represent something larger. Bennett will never be something she's not. She's not looking for validation from record labels or really even from audiences. Later that night, as thousands of Mexican teenagers rushed the stage, singing along in English and screaming her name, Bennett looked completely at home and completely herself. Oh, I forgot how good that was. <laughs> no, I love that piece. Thank you. Yeah, of course. On that note, we open out for questions. And there are mics, I've been told, to remind you that if you have a question, just wait for the microphone to come, and our um, wonderful staff members will be able to assist. So we have one question right here. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Thank you. Is this on? It is. So you've spoken very eloquently of the possibilities that the internet and online media provide to be black and strange and fabulous. Um, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Milo Yiannopoulos here. Um, his talk was shut down, but he is perhaps most notorious for conducting a campaign of harassment against a black woman on Twitter. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the other complications of being black online, the way in which he makes you, it makes you more vulnerable and the way in which the internet has weaponized hate. It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure I think being black makes you more vulnerable online. I think the tech companies that build these platforms don't prioritize the safety of black people who happen to also be online. I mean, I think there's something really interesting about the way Leslie Jones, whom Milo weaponized people to attack and go after, um, those comments weren't taken down, they were left up, they were, they were, you know, her, her accounts were all hacked and she was attacked for days and yet when people go after Taylor Swift on Instagram, their comments are immediately deleted, you know, because she's seen as more valuable to that platform. So, so there's something about the intrinsic way that these companies are viewing who's valuable and who's worthy of protecting and who isn't that is bigger than just what it means for me to be online or someone like Taylor Swift to be online. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, the internet has weaponized hate, but also the companies, there are companies that don't do enough to protect the people that are using it um, because people will use anything to weaponize hate. You know, like they'll, if people want to weaponize hate, they'll find a way to do it. I just think that there is a sense that, you know, everything's equal when we're all online. We're all getting online in the same way. And to some degree we are, but it's not, it's not the same. Um, it's, it's not, a, it's not, I'm losing my words, but it's, 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 it's definitely treated differently. And I, I definitely think that Twitter has responded appropriately and, and they seem like they continue to, and now they're doing this thing where you can mute a keyword, and I don't understand why it's taken them over 10 years to figure out how to employ that when that's something that even, you know, like if my 13-year-old niece can do or whatever, it's like, it's, I don't know. But but there is something that's actually a lot more insidious that's happening in, in the Valley and tech companies where people that work at those companies don't deal with those problems, so they don't ever hear about them, and they think they can ignore them until it's too late. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? Just the, what is the particular conundrum for you or for others um, like you who, who use these platforms when the, the very technology that um, you've mastered in terms of creativity, like African-American kids on Vine, right? Like um, African-American kids on, on Twitter, right? The way in which like a certain style of, of racial, gender, self-presentation thrived, right? Um, when that when those same mechanisms become either the portals through which you have to witness violence death against black bodies or become spaces where a certain kind of t directed targeted violence um, emerges. Like, how do you sit with that kind of conundrum or think it through or, or work with it? I think that's part of what the Black Health Matters article was about. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny because it feels, like, it feels like, a, like a heartbreak and it feels like... It, you know, I feel like I believed, I believed the things that all these tech companies told me about what their platforms can do and what they, how they were going to work and how they were going to figure out all these problems as they came along. And then that's sort of when the tide turned for me and turned for a lot of other people who were writing about technology at the same time. And I think that's, we're just now at the very beginning of having those conversations about what does it mean when... Um, Vine, for example, which is a platform that many young black kids have used to express creativity, to get jobs and to get hired is not considered um, valuable enough to keep running. It's like, well, what does that mean? And, and so who, you know, it's like, I, I think we're just now, and, and also the ways in which um, 
those communities are mined and then often don't make any profit or not credited for the creativity that they bring to the internet ecosystem, which, which colors everything that we do. And so I think we're starting to have those conversations, but I don't know that we're having them in the right rooms. Like I don't know that we're having them with the audience that needs to hear them. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in is sort of, are they receptive to that? And that's the answer that I don't have yet. Yes, there's a hand there, yellow purse. So I actually work at Twitter, and I'm going Welcome. to <laughs> and I'm going to start actually working on the abuse problem in the next month or so. Hey. <laughs> so um, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that. And just coming here today and hearing your perspective has been super valuable to me. So thank you, and I would love to hear more about what you think we could do to make the internet a better and safer and freer place. Well, thank you for coming. Even the fact that you're here says a lot about, you know, a real empathy and an interest in learning more and growing. I mean, I, it's, it's hard for me to answer that question because I come from such an interesting position of visibility and privilege, and I'm not really that much of a target online. But I, I do think it is something that your company needs to prioritize, and I think one of the ways you guys can start doing it is just by talking to some of your most vulnerable users. Um, it is an interesting question that we all have to kind of think about and I think we have to sort of also reevaluate what it means to be vulnerable online and we also have to reevaluate what harassment means online because I think there is a lack of, of comprehension around mean words said online aren't a big deal and I, that's just not true and, and violence looks like many different things so I think that, that that conversation has to happen first too. Hi Anasuya, um, thanks so much for all that you've written and and spoken about and all that you do. Um, one of the things that you talked about, sort of alluded to, was sort of the back end of the internet around Google algorithms. And many of the conversations we have about bias, systemic bias on the internet, tends to be at the front end. A lot of the conversation we're having right now, for instance, our experience as users um, accessing the internet. But there's a really big black hole, and I use that advisedly, um, around knowledge production and the back end of the internet, the epistemic injustice of not seeing our bodies, not seeing our knowledge, not seeing our faces in particular ways, um, of how, as you said, Google algorithms bias in specific ways and how they get gamed in other ways. And then this notion that this is all neutral, this sense of neutrality around it when we know it's of course not. And I wonder how much your conversations with Silicon Valley companies and, and those who inhabit those companies, primarily still unfortunately very skewed towards white male, um, brings up those issues of epistemic injustice on the internet. Um, <clears throat> thank you for such a thoughtful comment and question. I don't have those conversations with anybody in Silicon Valley, but I also, I just don't spend that much time out here anymore, which is which is part of it. But I think now what I'm really starting to engage with is academics and researchers and people who are observing that that behavior and, and compiling data on it, because I find that work to be much more interesting and a little bit more honest. And so I feel like that's where a lot more of those genuine conversations have. I mean, the <clears throat> to me, what feels like a step forward and 
maybe even progress is that you will hear people in the valley talk about um, pipeline problems and you will hear them talk about, I mean, but I, I just don't know if we're subbing in new keywords for old keywords. So that's the thing. I don't know if they're, I don't know to what degree they're internalizing it yet. Um, but I also know that people with a lot more influence than me are also writing and talking to them and reaching out. And so I feel like there is this, we're, maybe we're on the cusp of something. We're definitely on the cusp of, a, of another kind of reckoning, I think, in Silicon Valley. And you see all the conversations that are happening around Uber, which are really, really fascinating to me because I've never seen a, a tide turn in terms of social capital in a company happen so fast. And I re remember thinking, like, deleting that app doesn't actually matter. You actually have to do something else about it. But now I'm starting to, th I'm, I'm rethinking that actually like I'm actually thinking they are paying attention and it even if nothing else even if it's not affecting their bottom line which I'm not sure it is they they still they still care about their reputation and that is something that really matters out here and so putting them in a position of having to be responsible for that and defend it and justify their decisions is really, really, really interesting and something I'm watching closely, which just doesn't really quite answer your question. But but I think I'm right now in a much more of an observational role and trying to sort of write from an outsider's perspective versus when I was trying to get inside for so long. We have time for one more question. Yes. Hey, Jenna, how's it going? Um, so I guess um, as a person of color, uh, the stories that, um, that I, if I wanted to do that would get some traction would be right now uh, being Muslim, Arab, or anything that looks relatively brown, brown, black, whatever. Um, those are stories that I could have access to and tell and you know tell from a certain vantage point. But then there comes to that certain point where it's like pigeonholing, where it's just like, do I want to keep doing this? Or like, am I, am I the token go-to reporter on these topics? And... The flip side is sort of, you know, you have the access, that responsibility, but at some point, how do you sort of like, you know, manage that sort of internal conflict or dilemma where it's just like, oh, I'm just writing this so white people can understand how black people use Twitter type of thing. Like that, that sort of back and forth of, because- But one, do you ever notice how those pieces are usually written by white people though? <laughs> it's like, we already know, but, yeah. but I hear you. Thanks, yeah. Um, but I mean that sense of, because like, you know, I, I'm in that process right now where I'm trying to come up with a bunch of story ideas, but I'm just like, oh, this is too much of this type of thing. Or it's like, well, I'm self-editing. But then there's also that sense like, why am I self-editing? Mm -hmm. But then, it, yeah. I'm also very self, like, I'm very insecure, so that's, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for saying so. I mean, I think that's a real, that's like a real thing that comes up as a writer. And I think there's a lot of, there are always these moments of like, Am I here because I deserve to be here? Am I here because, you know, like, why am I in this room? And I, I mean, this is a conversation that uh, my friends and I have all the time where we're like, well, why are they asking us to write that thing? Like, why aren't they asking somebody else to write that piece? You know, and, and sometimes I think, um, I, I think I'm learning how to be a little bit more of, um, an advocate in that way when I talk to editors, when I talk to them about trying to outsource the labor of bringing in more diverse voices to the diverse diverse voices they've already got. It's like, that's not actually my job, but if you wanna pay me, I can do that, you know, but, um, but there is this, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and I, I think there is this feeling of the responsibility. I think there's also this feeling of what's important to you too, and the reason you have access to these stories is because this is your life and this is what's important to you. And so I think, you know, for me, because when I was transitioning out of writing about technology, that was what I wanted to do. So I was really adamant about writing those kinds of stories because that was what I felt was lacking and I felt that was what I felt passionate about. But I'm also, I mean, 
I'm not taking on stories that are out, outside of my level of expertise or my level of, of access, I guess, just because I feel like I have to or I should. I'm trying to make myself more available as a resource to make sure those stories get done, but that only if people want to do it on their own terms. Like, I, I just think... You know, we are so rare, but we can't. But I know for me, like mental health and wellness has become the thing that I'm the most interested in writing about and talking about. And so that's where all of my energies energies are focused. And also writing about black women and queer black people and getting them into the pages of the magazine is my ultimate priority. So sometimes I'm like, I'll, I'll have this moment where I'll wake up and I'm like, am I pigeonholing myself? And I'm like, dumb, dumb, this is what you wanted. Like, chill, you know? So I think there is kind of a balancing act and, and it starts with having a real honest conversation about what you feel good about doing and what you want to be doing and not being afraid to throw a side eye sometimes. Like I think there's a real respectful way to have a conversation with an editor that's like, I am not comfortable doing this. And we can talk about why, or I can just tell you no, or I can just suggest some other people that you might want to look at, or you can do that work yourself. Like, I think we have to get a little bit better about thinking that just because we've been let into the room, that means we're going to be as easily shut out of it. I don't, I don't think other people worry about that as much as we do, um, to be honest with you. And I think we have to stop because they need us and we need to remember our own value because it is so high. It is so high, my friend. <laughs> Jenna, what is in the black future? What is the black future? <laughs> uh, actually, a lot of hope and optimism. I mean, that's the thing. It's like these these times are really rough, but I don't know if you know if anyone in this room has access to elders, um, elders of color, elders who have immigrated from other parts of the world. They're just like child, no, like. <laughs> Wake me up when it gets difficult. You know, it's like, so I think there is sometimes there, there is this, and it's been really funny, I guess, and also not funny, because I'm like, oh God. But there is a sense of, um, we've always fought this fight. You know, we've always, and, and that was why I Am Not Your Negro was so powerful, at least to me, because, I mean, it was devastating, but it was also really powerful. That was just like, oh, we're, we're just picking up the baton, actually. Like, we're actually just carrying it forward. and. I personally have been grieving that that is the life that I'm, I've been living this whole time and I guess I'm not really aware of it, but just that that is the work. That's the work of our lifetime and I've made a lot of peace with that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's funny because in a macro sense, things are kind of going to hell, but like a lot of people in my life are doing really, really, really important work and they're, and they're getting ahead doing it and they're making, they're leaving the mark they want to leave and I just feel like that is... I don't know. That's the most important thing right now. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can find links to the writing of Jenna Wortham on the Chapter and Verse website at chapterversepod.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Jenny Deluxe. Thanks also go out to Nadia Ellis, to Teresa Kotsarillis, co-producer of Chapter and Verse, and to the UC Berkeley Townsend Center for the Humanities, the Arts Research Center, and the Art and Design Initiative, which provided funding for the Wortham event and for this show.
Thank you.